This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. First off, form of the day, in addition to uh, our ongoing practice of um, uh, remembering to uh, sit down at those two little bells, beginning of morning service after the refugees to keep the flow harmonious. Dong, ding, ding. And then the sutra books come from both sides. Anyaramita Shingyo. Oh, so sweet. That was yesterday's form but also tomorrow's and the next days. Today's form of the day is, uh, I'm not sure what people have been doing because I can't see because my face is um, planted on the floor this time. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this is also kind of unique to Sashin, which is why we haven't talked about this. We're not used to it because... We sit down at morning service in Sashin. There's a little bell in the first dedication to to the Buddha and the ancestors while the um, chant leader is is doing a solo recitation of the dedication. And when that bell goes, um, the doshi plants their face in the floor. and, uh, And you can almost do the same when that bell goes. You know, when we're standing, we just bow like this. But when we're on, when we're sitting, if you're sitting in seiza, that's the tradition for chanting. Seiza is kneeling. It's also okay to sit cross-legged or whatever is comfortable for for um, service chanting. But the ideal is um, if you're on the floor when that bell goes, you bow like all the way down so that your elbow is touch the mat and your hands are almost on the floor. It's easier if you're kneeling, actually. Cross-legged, it might be a you know, particular yoga asana. <laughs> but you can see, again, I'm not sure what people are doing because I can't see. But you have nobody to watch except yourselves. You're not entrusted with this form of the day. And this day is not just an ordinary day. This day is the eighth day of the 12th month. Even though we celebrate Buddha's great awakening at the end of Sashin, technically today is Rohatsu, which means the eighth day of the 12th month celebrated um, in China, and I'm not sure about Korea. Uh, These East Asian countries are the ones that since ancient times have celebrated Buddha's awakening on the eighth day of the 12th month. In China, they use the lunar calendar. So the, um, the 12th month, I think it's probably January, they would celebrate this day at least in the, in the old monastic system, I think they 
stay with the old Chinese New Year schedule. But uh, Japan has been modernized for some centuries and then uses our Gregorian calendar. So today is the eighth day of the 12th month. Probably many people in Japan and America um, celebrating Buddha today. And uh, I thought on a special occasion, since maybe nobody here has heard my um, Rohatsu shaggy dog story, <laughs> maybe some Santa Cruzians. Uh, Scott, have you heard the shaggy dog story? <laughs> and uh, Kareem, have you heard it? You might have heard it. You'll see if you've heard it or not. One time, Tokyo was in, uh, in Bodh Gaya, India, in the ancient land of Magadha. It's like the region in which Bodh Gaya is in. It's the um, kind of center of the universe in Dharma perspective the belly button of the planet is the Bodhi tree. Under the Bodhi tree is the Vajrasana, the indestructible seat on which it's said since ancient times that all Buddhas will uh, realize the way on the same seat. So Maitreya Buddha in the future, when he... Uh, descends to this world system to become a Buddha. That's where he's gonna sit, according to the old suttas. And that's where Shakyamuni Buddha sat. And uh, so these days, you can't sit right on that stone um, seat under the tree, um, unless you're about to be a Buddha. It's kind of, the seat itself has a little fence around it but you can sit like right next to it. Yeah. And then there's the, the Bodhi tree, the huge, huge Bodhi tree, uh, which is a descendant of the original Bodhi tree. It said, Marco's been to Bogaya, yeah. Meikan, you've been to Bogaya? Anyone else been to Bogaya? Well, it's one of my favorite places in the universe. I've been maybe four or five times and I hope to go again in this lifetime. It's a dusty, rundown, funky old town, but it's the belly button of the universe. <laughs> so it's a power spot. And uh, many people have discovered it. So they, um, they go there from all Buddhist countries in Asia and, and Europe and Americas. People can sit and chant and bow under the Bodhi tree to the Vajra throne. And uh, all around the tree, there's little stupas and there's the great Mahabodhi temple giant stupa-like temple next to the Bodhi tree. 
always, all day, every day. This is great expression of devotion and revering Buddhas and ancestors at this place, which is why it's inspiring place. And uh, one day, um, I think 20 or 21 years ago today, I happened to be there and it was, it was the eve of Rohatsu. It was December 7th, the eve before Rohatsu. And, and I naturally thought to myself, how rare is it to be at Buddha's awakening place on Rohatsu? Other countries celebrate this day at other times, otherwise it would be like a mob scene. But, um, and not that many like Japanese pilgrims are in Bogaya. Some are, some came to, the, to that tree in the morning and did a ceremony uh, from Japan, but not many. So, um, but, but that's my tradition felt like, when else will I happen to be there again on this day? Um, I should sit under the Bodhi tree all night like the Buddha and look for the morning star on Rohatsu morning. And uh, the grounds around this Mahabodhi temple have a big um, fence, probably like like an acre or something. I mean, it's pretty big grounds that are fenced in. So, because there are a lot of people like to practice and there's lots of small Bodhi trees and lots of stupas and all the places that are marked where the Buddha hung around after he got up from the Bodhi tree. And, um, and you, there's kind of a, an entry gate. And, uh, and then at night, they, they lock the fence. And so um, they don't want vandalism or anything at night. It's, it's kind of a temple with grounds. But um, there was a maybe somewhat unknown thing that you could do there that somebody told me about is um, you, could, you could get permission to, when they lock the gate at night, you can get permission to be locked inside the gate. And uh, you can't go out. But they, they open it early in the morning because people come at four o'clock or something and they close it at 10 or something. But if you go there before they close it and you have your, you, you know, you've signed up for this, um, they'll lock you inside <laughs> so you can sit all night. And uh, this was a while ago. My memory is that um, I don't think there was anybody else that night. Maybe there was, there was like a kind of, um, the security guy who maybe like lived in a little shack on the side or something and went to sleep pretty quickly. I don't think there was anybody else because there wasn't anybody, at least where I was sitting, like under the giant branches of the Bodhi tree. And it was December, so it was Northern India's a little bit like Austin. You know, you have cold, cold, nights, but um, 
not that cold. So I went in and set up my cushions under the Bodhi tree, totally quiet. It was such a blessing. And uh, what, an, what an auspicious occasion or how, what, um, what good energy here. Maybe I can get really still and I'm not right on that Bodhi seat, but, but uh, maybe it's close enough <laughs> to um, realize the way tonight. And I sat down and arranged myself in the cool stillness. And um, though there's no people in, in this and the grounds here, there are a bunch of um, Indian stray dogs, kind of rough dogs. They just, you know, most of the Indian dogs don't really have like owners. They're mostly stray dogs. And they're not like, you know, they're scraggly and kind of wounded and they eat whatever scraps they can find, human food. And sometimes they're, they're a little snarly, but, uh, and they don't make them leave the ground. So they're always walking around the, the Bodhi tree with the humans and they're hang- they live, some of them sleep, I guess, inside the fence there. So as I was sitting, one of those scruffy dogs um, came up to me and um, since it was a cool night it kind of like plopped itself in my lap <laughs> while I was sitting <laughs> and you know my first thought is well it probably has fleas and like <laughs> and it looks really gross I mean nobody washes these dogs and like, is this okay? Um, and, uh, and also it's like, you know, suddenly like my cross-legged posture was not so comfortable. <laughs> so I just kind of like push, push the dog off my legs and it just like flipped back around and curled up back in the lap. <laughs> and really, so I like, Kind of push push it a, a little way again. It does the same thing. I'm like, wow, this is like, what am I gonna do here? I'm just getting started in this sitting. Is is like, I'm not gonna let this dog sleep here all night on my lap. It's not comfortable, and it probably has fleas. So I'm like, I'm like, well, we have to maybe like a little bit, a little bit tougher here, and like kind of push it push it a little further, a little bit aggressively. I'm getting a little annoyed and it even more quickly comes back. <laughs> so then I actually like really kind of push it like a few feet away, a little bit hard and it starts wagging its tail and comes back. And um, around the, uh, around the ground, this whole area right around the Bodhi tree is this um, marble walkway like polished marble, big kind of walkway that people are always circumambulating around. And uh, so it's, it's very smooth marble shining in the moonlight. So I kind of like push the dog and it kind of would slide along the marble <laughs> platform five feet out there. Like that should do it. But it, you know, wags its tail even more, gets up and like comes back. Now it's like a game, right? <laughs> it's like 
fetch, playing fetch with the dog, except <laughs> except the dog is um, is the thing to be fetched. Instead of throwing something for the dog, I'm throwing the dog. <laughs> and then like I'm like, this is getting like really too much. And so I actually would stand up, pick up the dog, almost like a bowling ball, <laughs> throw it down the down the marble platform. <laughs> like 20 feet out there, it would be like sliding down there, but immediately find its feet and come running back. <laughs> After doing this a few times, throwing the dog, literally throwing it further and further. Not, you know, of course, trying not to hurt it, but trying to really give it the message that it was having the opposite effect. It was really enjoying this game. And the game was come back and, and sit on Kokyo's lap as quickly as you can so he can throw you again. <laughs> and... Uh, at some point, I said, there's just nothing, there's no other possibility. There's nothing I can do here. Okay, just sit down. Dog comes and like curls up on my lap. And uh, I guess I'll just, I'll just sit like this tonight. And after just a few minutes, it kind of just got bored and got up and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is... This was uh, my rohatsu lesson. It's a kind of zazen instruction, right? If something's really annoying and you, um, you try to push it away, it's probably gonna come back. And if you try to be even more aggressive pushing it away, it's probably gonna come back even more, uh, more strongly. But if you really just totally let it be and just like surrender, like whatever fine you can you can stay here all night then maybe whatever that that difficult experience is gets bored and walks off case 18 in the denko loku record of transmitting the light the 18th ancestor was venerable Gayashata. He was the attendant of Venerable Sanganandi, the 17th ancestor. One time he heard the sound of the wind blowing the brass bells in the temple, hanging under the temple eaves, wind bells. And Venerable Sanganandi asked, are the bells ringing or is the wind ringing? And Kayashata, Kayashata Dayosho said, it's neither the bells nor the wind. What do you think he said next? It's your mind. Yes, it's a mind ringing or sounding, ringing or sounding. And, uh, and then Sanghanandi said, and who is the mind? And Gayashata said, because both are silent, 
strange. All the translations say it's something like that. Because, because is the kind of funny part. Because both are silent. And uh, it's not clear what both are. So, um, uh, Lex Hickson interprets this as both the bell and the wind are actually silent. And Griffith Folk interprets it as both of the teachers and the students' minds are silent. I kind of like that interpretation. In other words, are the bells ringing or is the wind ringing? Neither the bells nor the wind is ringing. It is mind that's ringing. And the teacher said, and who is the mind? And the student answered, because both are silent. Who is the mind? Dogen likes to use these kind of who questions as, um, as statements. Like if somebody says, who is the mind? Dogen um, will, will commenting on that would say, um, that's correct. Who is the mind? Who being a word for like um, the, uh, the ineffable, the inconceivable. That's what the mind is. Who is the mind? That's right. Who is the mind? So we could interpret it like this. Um, Sangha Nandi said, well, who is the mind? And Gayashita said, mm -hmm. because both your mind and my mind are silent. Therefore, who is the mind? But it's a funny phrase. It's, it's, it's a koan considered. Who is the mind? Or another translation is whose mind? Because both are silent. Even if you take out the because, I think it's still a great teaching. Who's the mind? Both are silent. The bell is silent, the wind is silent, your mind is silent, my mind is silent. And because all of that is silent, what's left is the mind. Mind here is a capital M, big mind. And uh, when Gaia's not to say, because both are silent, uh, Sanghanandi said, Excellent, excellent. Who but you will succeed to my way? Thereupon he entrusted the Dharma treasury to Gayashita. Circumstances of the story here, Kezan's recounting. Um, Gayashita was from Magadha in the Bodhgaya area. He belonged to the family of Udraka Ramaputra, who is, according to the sutras, before the Buddha was the Buddha, after he left home, he went and started trying to learn a bunch of meditation practices from other teachers in India, of which was already happening for many centuries. And he, and he found Udraka Ramaputra could teach him these deep 
um, concentration states like Nirota, Samakati. Um, I think like things like these Nirota states of cessation were already being practiced before the Buddha. So, um, which is kind of an example of how that wasn't the main point that the Buddha was, was uh, the main thing that the Buddha discovered and offered was not like the, the cessation where the, where the, um, where the EED goes like flatline during meditation. Um, Buddha discovered something. That was already happening. Buddha discovered something new. But Udraka Ramaputra was one of those concentration teachers. And um, so this is many, some centuries later. And, uh, but maybe um, Gayashata here is from in the family lineage of that teacher, Udraka Ramaputra. And his father was celestial canopy and his mother was everywhere virtuous. And one time she had a dream of a great spirit holding a round mirror. And as a result, she became pregnant. Seven days later, Gaya Shate was born. It was a quick pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> and his body shined like lapis lazuli. Even without being washed, he was naturally fragrant and clean. When he was born, a round mirror appeared and accompanied him everywhere the boy walked around. All these strange stories of the ancient Indian ancestors. He was born with this mirror that followed him around. And uh, Dogen Zendi has an essay called the ancient mirror, and Dogen says, comment, Dogen comments on this story because he comments on every mirror story he could find. And uh, so Dogen says, this Gaya Shatta was born together with the mirror. That does not mean that the round mirror came from his mother's womb at the time of his birth. It appeared spontaneously. So Gogan's pointing out that the mirror wasn't born when Gayashatta was born. Gayashatta, the person was born, but his mirror was unborn. So this boy, Gayashatta, was always fond of quiet places and he was not at all contaminated by worldly matters. The so-called round mirror was before his face when he was sitting and all matters pertaining to the Buddhas were reflected in this mirror. So it's not clear exactly how is it like, kind of like this in front of him, or does it kind of move around at different times? Sometimes it sounds like it's behind him and so on, but it's always around him. It was brighter, this mirror was brighter than one's mind illuminated by the holy teaching. If the boy went someplace, the mirror followed him like a halo behind him. However, the boy's form could be seen through this mirror. It was kind of like a transparent mirror. When he went to bed, the mirror hung over his bed like a celestial canopy. 
In short, the mirror never failed to follow him wherever he was walking about, standing still, sitting or lying down. How um, wonderful this morning we chanted. It's like facing a dual mirror, form and image behold each other. You are not it in truth, it is you. So if this mirror is like in front of um, in front of the boy, then it's like he's facing the dual mirror, and uh, and everything in the world is reflected in this mirror, um, and he sees himself in the mirror. We might think of the mirror as uh, as our awareness itself, our true self kind of like on this side in which this whole world is reflected, that each one of us is a mirror in which the, the world appears. But the world that appears is really nothing other than the mirror of true self. So we can imagine this metaphor as if the mirror is like on this side, but that dual mirror samadhi that we chanted, it sounds kind of the other way because the the chances, it's like facing a dual mirror. So it's instead of the mirror on this side, the mirror's on that side. We could play with the metaphor like that. In other words, everywhere I look out there, all I see is the mirror. And um, ev all, everything that I see, the great assembly and the uh, flowers and light uh, are all reflections on the surface of this very clear uh, mirror, so clear that um, it looks like those things are really like substantial things out there instead of just reflections on a mirror of true self. And everywhere we go all day long, the mirror is in front of us all day long. It's like facing a jewel mirror. And then um, we might say, that's, a, that's great. I am this jewel mirror. But then Dungshan says, actually, it's not really that, that you're it. Actually, it is you. You are not it in truth. It is you. Just to emphasize that um, it's not some, it's not like my personal mirror. It's not that I, Kokyo, am this mirror. It's more that this mirror of true self is Kokyo and Mekon and Du and everybody. I think that's one of the, to me, that's the, that's the uh, key word, that's the central um, <clears throat> jewel of the jewel mirror samadhi song. You are not it in truth, it is you. That's, you could take that into zazen as a, as a koan and chew on it until it's um, really um, mushy in your mouth and swallow it and then vomit it out. 
So this, this is the story here that um, Gayashita, uh, the boy Gayashita walked around and everywhere he went, the mirror went. Sanganandi was traveling around teaching the Dharma and arrived in Magadha. Suddenly a cool breeze arose and everyone was delighted in body and mind, but no one understood why it happened. Everything happens according to conditions. A venerable Sanganandi said, this is the wind of the virtue of the way. Some wise person has left the world and he will perpetuate the ancestral lamp. So saying, he used his spiritual powers and gathered up the whole assembly of monks and carried them over mountains and valleys. After a while, they arrived at the foot of a mountain and Sanganandi said, on top of this peak, there's a purple cloud like a canopy and a wise person lives there. He wandered around with the monks for a while and finally he saw a hut with a young boy in it bearing a round mirror and approached Gayashita. And uh, Sanganandi asked him, how old are you? And the boy replied, a hundred years old. I thought, seems in the womb for seven days. <laughs> and we don't know how long he's been this boy, but he's, he's a boy with a mirror. And um, Sanganani said, you seem young. How can you be a hundred years old? This is a good one. The boy said, I don't know the reason, it's just I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> you can chew on that too, <laughs> swallow and vomit it out. <laughs> Sanganandi asked, are you skilled in functioning in the manner of a Buddha? The boy said, the Buddha said that even if a person lives 100 years, but doesn't understand, Damn, the functioning of Buddhas. It's not as good as living a single day and being capable of settling the matter. Maybe Sanganandi was impressed, the boy saying such a thing. And Sanganandi said, that thing that you're holding in your hands, what does that represent? Maybe this time he was holding the, the big mirror. Oh, this? <laughs> the boy said in verse, the great round mirror of all the Buddhas has no flaw either inside or outside. All alike see the mirror because their minds and eyes are all the same. Pretty good. The great round mirror of all the Buddhas has no blemish or flaw or smudge, or different translations, either inside or outside. All alike see the mirror 
because their minds and eyes are all the same. And then Dogen in his ancient mirror fascicle says regarding this, was this verse spoken by the round mirror or by the boy? And Dogen says, there is no inside, because remember it says, there's no flaw inside or outside. Dogen's comment is, there is no inside other than outside. That's the kind of mirror we're talking about. Dogen also says, this mirror has no front or back. So we're trying to picture the mirror kind of on this side, like, my mind is the mirror in which all of you are reflected, or if we're picturing the mirror out there and uh, the entire world is the mirror. Um, really, it's like, we don't wanna fall into either one of those um, limitations. This mirror um, has no front or back. It's not a flat kind of thing with the front and back. It's like a, even to call it a three-dimensional mirror, which is, I think, better, is still maybe too limited. Three is too limited. There is no inside the mirror other than outside. So we might feel like a usual mirror. There's, we might say inside is like, the surface of the mirror on the mirror is kind of like inside the mirror. And then there's the things outside the mirror. But um, here, Dogen's saying, there is no inside the mirror other than the outside. There's not two different things. Usually a mirror, we think of something reflected in the reflection. But this kind of mirror is, uh, is a totally non-dual mirror. Uh, so Gayasata, spoke this verse, and when his parents heard this, I guess they were there too, they surrendered him and let him leave home with Sanghinandi. And Sanghinandi took him back to where he started from, and when he finished giving him the complete precepts, he named him Gayashata. Once Gayashata heard the sound of the wind blowing some bells in the monastery and so on, as in the main case. And Sanghanandi transmitted the Dharma treasury to him. Later he became the 18th ancestor. When the young boy left home to become a monk, the round mirror suddenly disappeared. That was the end of that. <laughs> But wait a second, it's so nice. He had this mirror everywhere he went. We might say like any trace of anything extra disappeared or any sense of like, is the mirror over on this side? Is the mirror over on that side? He was, you know, this mirror was accompanying him. Um, maybe a little something extra that he was carrying around. So when he left home, um, no extra mirror to carry around. You could hear it like that. In Dogen's ancient mirror essay, he talks about um, 
Shui Feng and Xuan Xia having a conversation about having an ancient mirror in which when, um, uh, when foreigners come, they're reflected as foreigners and when the locals come, they're reflected as locals. Everything is really just the one mirror, but the mirror can make distinctions and tell the difference. It doesn't just blur into a, um, into a soup of indifferentiable oneness. Ultimately one mirror, but still distinguishing. That's how mirrors are. That's why a mirror is a great, uh, great image for our true self. And, uh, and these two ancestors talking and uh, one said, but what if neither a foreigner nor um, a local comes, but instead of that, another, another round mirror comes, then what's reflected. And, uh, and the other answer is, um, then there's no, there's no foreigners or locals anymore. And his friend says, um, um, that's not how I see it. Well, how do you see it? I'd say hundreds of shattered, broken shards, smashed mirror. So maybe that's a little like, um, he had this really nice flawless mirror, but when he left home, the mirror shattered and formless reflections of matter. Now Keizan's Keisho. Truly every person's one radiant light is like the present round mirror, which is without any flaws inside or outside. In this way, all are the same, quoting from this verse, all um, because their minds and eyes are all the same. This is a this is a great line. So it's, it comes translated in very different ways, but I like this one. Truly, every person's one radiant light is like the present round mirror, which is without flaw inside or outside. In this way, all are the same. There's nothing new here. This is what we've been talking about all week. This true self is every person's one radiant light, every person's present round mirror, every person's flawless nature, no flaws inside or out. Or we could even say, no flaws of 
inside or outside as being different. In this way, all are the same. This is nature of all of us. From the time the young boy was born, Kazan says, he always praised matters concerning the Buddhas. He did not get mired down in worldly affairs. In the bright mirror, he saw things concerning the Buddhas of the past and present. Even though he understood that minds and eyes of all beings are the same, he still did not understand the full functioning of the Buddhas. Even if for a single day one understands the functioning of all the Buddhas, one will not only transcend 100 years, she will transcend innumerable lives. Referring to the boy's earlier statement. For this reason, the boy abandoned a round mirror when he realized this. We can understand from the situation that the one great matter of all the Buddhas is not something quick and easy. Truly, when one understands the great round mirror of all the Buddhas, what else is left? This is how the, the great mirror is. The, the jewel mirror uh, leaves nothing else from the perspective of the one great mirror. Nothing else is left. And then Kazan says, still, this is not fully the ultimate truth because what must this great round mirror of all the Buddhas be? And then he asks all these questions. What must all alike see it mean? And what about no flaw inside or outside? And what about flaw in the first place? And what about minds and eyes? And what about being the same? Something about like clarifying all these points. We have to thoroughly clarify the true self. So, that's, this is nice because this, this story, uh, today's story, is like a double feature. <laughs> we get the, uh, the whole mirror story, but now we get the main case. One time, Gayashanta heard the sound of the wind blowing the bells in the temple. And Sanghanandi asked him, are the bells ringing or is the wind ringing? And so on, Kazan says. This story should be carefully investigated. Although Sanganandi never saw any bells or perceived any wind, he still tried to show what this is. So he asked, are the bells ringing or is the wind ringing? Kazan says, when the universe was still in its primordial undivided state, how can you even say that it's not the ringing of bells? Or um, put inside the universe, you could also translate this as, 
when in the primordial undivided state, how can you say even that this is not ringing of bells? It's saying, you can't say anything in the primordial undivided state. Primordial here is a, is a uh, translation of um, my teacher's name, Tenshin, which is an interesting term that um, literally two Chinese characters mean like heaven, heaven's truth, heavenly truth. But as a compound, they mean something like naturally real. And uh, this, in this case, primordial. My teacher primordial Roshi. When, when pri in the primordial undivided state, how can we say anything even about no ringing? Therefore, Gaya Shatta said, it is mind that's ringing. From the time of Gayashita to the time of the sixth ancestor in China, Wenong, is a very long time. And yet they're not really separate. Therefore, Wenong said, some of you might know this story. What the story is. Any guesses what the story is about to tell us? There's no mirror to polish. No, there's that one too that's related, but this is a this is a different one related to the wind bell story here. Um, the uh, in the platform sutra, the um, when the sixth ancestor, after like living out in the forest for like like um, decades, I think. Mm -hmm. He was an ancestor, but he was like going incognito for a while and he finally he was trying to stay in hiding, but he came out and he heard these monks arguing about this flag. Uh, and um, and some, one was saying, the flag's moving. The other was saying, no, the wind is moving. And he couldn't help himself, poor Huaynung. <laughs> Excuse me, you guys. Huaynung said, the wind is not moving. The flag is not moving. It's mine that's moving. So it's almost the same story, right? One's about the flag and the wind, and this Indian story is about the, uh, the sound of the bells and the wind, which one is ringing. So Kazan picked up on that and said, there's a lot of time in between these, but they're really not separate. All of you now, too, when you thoroughly uh, attain the mind ground, will make no distinction among the three times. It's kind of commenting on the difference between this old Indian story of Gayashita and the Chinese story of the sixth ancestor. Don't make distinctions between the three times. Uh, verification in past and present will be continuous and there will be no discrimination of difference. Do not discriminate with ordinary views. You will understand for the first time by means of not wind ringing, not bells ringing. That's how we'll understand. If you want to understand what this matter is, you must understand it's mind ringing. 
during zazen, you may hear the sound of the fountain. Now you might hear the sound of a voice. And the sound of the fountain and the sound of the voice are, are moving through the air in the room. I'm not sure, like in a vacuum where there's no air, if you ring a bell, does it make a sound? I don't think so, right? It needs, it needs particles in the air to move. It needs some air or wind. So we could ask this as, as kind of like, almost like a, a science question. <laughs> when the bell rings in an in atmosphere like air, actually the particles in, of the air are vibrating. So, um, so first we might think, well, that's silly. It's not the... It's not the wind ringing, but actually, I mean, it's more accurate to say that it's the wind making the sound than the bell making the sound. I don't know what a, what a, a physics person would say, but actually, which is it? The bell ringing or the mind or the, or the wind ringing? Or it's the eardrum. And the brain activity. Yeah, this would be the, we could add these in. Yeah, good one. This is the updated version of this. <laughs> <laughs> is it the is it the fountain making the sound? Is it the air making the sound? Is it the eardrum making the sound? Is it the brain's activity making the sound? Which is it? And you could have like four monks all kind of like taking, <laughs> taking one position. And then we could have Gaya Shata or or the sixth ancestor come in and said, actually, it's none of them. Wait a second. Actually, isn't isn't the most accurate to say that it's the um, the brain's interpretation of the eardrum movements? But that's just what the neuroscientists would say. They say no, no, no. It's it's actually those are all you know part of the dependent arising of this experience of sound. But really, what is the ringing itself? What is truly the true nature of the ringing? It's just mind. Capital M, mind. We could apply this to um, all the senses, which is nice that Gaia Shanta uses the auditory sense and the um, sixth ancestor story uses the visual sense of which one is blowing or seems to be moving or the physical sense of movement. So uh, we could explore all, all the senses and uh, but just to take sound because I think it's it's maybe the best entry into this. So maybe this sound of the voice is dominating the sound of the fountain right now. But whatever sound there is, um, there is right a hearing of the sound for everybody, and uh, and we could explain it in just that way that that sound uh, has these conditions like. Um, Toka's vocal cords vibrating, causing the, the wind of the zendo to vibrate, the air of the zendo to vibrate, and your eardrum to vibrate. And then the, the brain, that's kind of a hard to figure part, but somehow the brain um, can, inter can interpret the, these vibrations and now the eardrum into what the experience we call hearing 
a sound. Um, so those are all conditions for the dependent arising of the experience of sound. It's not that's that's true. That's the conventional explanation of the dependent arising of sound. But um, but uh, if we settle into our most deepest intimate experience of now, there is listening to sound. And this listening, this hearing is a kind of knowing. And it's a kind of cognizing. There's cognizing the sound, just like there's cognizing the colors and cognizing the thoughts and cognizing the physical sensations. There is this knowing. And uh, again, I propose that knowing here is just a synonym for awareness, true self, the great round mirror of all the Buddhas, capital M, mind. This knowing that it is the, it's the same knowing with every experience, even though at first it doesn't seem that way because it seems like the knowing of a sound and the knowing of a color are very different types of knowing. Yes, but they share something in common. It's called knowing. They're, they're both, they're just different types of knowing. But when we, when we, when we um, step back further and further, investigating what is knowing, what is awareness, uh, we find they become more and more like the same. They, they share the sim similarity, just pure knowing. And, and uh, this knowing is like space. It, it's always the case. It's an unchanging knowing that takes the form sometimes of seeing and takes the form sometimes of hearing. And those experiences are constantly changing. But the knowing of them is, uh, I would propose, always the same. This is what we can investigate in Zazen. Carefully, intimately, trace our way back, back, back to just what is this at its root? And I don't think we can go back any further than just it, all I can say is it's just knowing, it's just awareness. What is that? I don't know. But are you sure that there is knowing and awareness? If you don't even know what it is, I'm sure there is knowing and awareness, even though I don't know what it is. And then we can, uh, we can uh, maybe imagine that uh, like a slightly different perspective, this is a conceptual imagined version of this perspective where instead of like um, the sound of the voice is happening to my awareness, that's I think often how we think. My awareness is over here, it's located I don't know exactly where, but it's like somewhere over here and the sound's over there and the sound is coming. Do, 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 <laughs> and it like meets the awareness. That would be, I, I think 
many people's usual perspective, the sound is happening to awareness. But um, to try on this other perspective of what if sound is not happening to awareness, but sound is happening in awareness. Which, which would mean that awareness is not like somewhere over here and the sound is somewhere over there, but the awareness is boundless. It's like space. And if it really is truly boundless like space, then the sound actually must be happening within it because there's nothing outside of space. Uh, it's a different perspective. Slight shift of perspective. Yes. How do you relate this to the 18 dots? Yeah, so the... So the uh, Buddha taught the 18 datus, which are the, um, which is related to this conversation, right? The 18 datus are, um, there's six sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, uh, and mental faculties. That's called the six indriyas, like the receptivity or the faculties. Indriya is related to the word Indra, the lord of the gods. So, um, so this is etymologically like the rulers of our experience are these six faculties, like eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, word, that really make it happen. And then we have the, uh, the six sense objects, the color, the sound, the smell, the taste, the tactile sensation, and the mental objects like thoughts and emotions and then we have the six consciousnesses are, are like mediating between the faculties and the objects right so there's an eye consciousness ear consciousness nose tongue body mind consciousness that's the from the foundational teachings of the buddha called the 18 elements datus and uh partly i think I would say maybe the main reason the Buddha taught these 18 elements is to show like it accounts for all experience and any, any experience we could have, you could fit it in to um, some aspect of these 18 elements. And he taught these kind of all inclusive kind of systems. So let's investigate experience in terms of these 18 elements and then see there's nothing in addition to them. And particularly what we usually think there is in addition to these 18 is like a separate self. Like there's the me in addition to these 18 elements. So just like the five aggregates model is, an, is just an alternate model. Like there's, there's these five aggregates of experience and there's nothing in addition to them like a separate self. It's the main reason why the Buddha would teach this. Let's investigate our experience. It's just dependently arisen stuff. And um, there's no independent separate self in addition to this stuff, which also relates to the question about free will the other day. Um, there's no free will in addition to these conditioned dependent 18 elements. So, um, so that, that model, that's, I would say that's a kind of a model of like, the conventional truth of how the mind works. A good one based on experience looking. And in that model, I think it is kind of like the color, um, 
happens to the eye consciousness. You could even say that the color, the color comes into the eye and or the eye meets the color. And, um, but in terms of the, you could say the consciousness, the eye consciousness, um, the color happens to the eye consciousness. So that is, and that's what I'm saying. I think that's how we usually do experience things. And it's true from a conventional point of view. And, uh, and this eye consciousness is called the chakshur vijnana, the eye consciousness in vijnana, probably heard me say, means divided knowing. It's a, it's a dualistic consciousness. It's not conceptual, but it's still divided into a, a knower and a known, right? An eye and a color. That's how it's divided or dualistic. So it's conventionally true. And then this is kind of going, stepping back, back, back into further and further, back behind even, even the 18 datus, I would say. Like um, back to where there's, um, there's no um, division. There's just um, radiant light of, um, it's just radiant light that we can call uh, knowing um, and awareness. But this kind of knowing and awareness would be like jnana instead of vijnana. It would be the undivided knowing, direct knowing uh, in which there are no um, subjects and objects to be distinguished. Could, could there be such a uh, non-dual awareness? And again, if it's truly not, if it's non-dual and it's boundless, both of those imply that there can't be anything, boundless implies there can't be anything outside of, because there's no boundaries to be outside of. And non-dual means there can't be anything other than it or in addition to it. So therefore, if there's some color happening, it's some experience of color, how would we, which we don't want to deny the experience of seeing a color or hearing a sound in this kind of model, right? This kind of, um, this kind of description, where would that have to be? That color would have to be inside it. Right? Yes. <clears throat> Um, so the, all those uh, senses in the conventional sense um, can change, uh, decline, disappear, especially if one is lucky enough to age. Yeah. In fact, they are changing all the time by their very nature. The, the 18 elements, the Buddha would say, are like radically impermanent. They're like, yes. um, don't last for even more than a moment. But yes, they, they really start so, changing right. <laughs> so um and at some point uh i mean there's some kind of body dependent on uh, if awareness practice is somehow dependent on a body that has some level of function um of, of those things so is there a practice um 
I'm interested in practice. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. That as those change, let's say as you're dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you practice? Nature, practice then. <laughs> yeah. How, yeah or... So you're right that um, for the practice of awareness must depend on a body. A practice is something that bodies and sentient beings do, right? Yes. So I would agree that yeah, the practice of awareness, of being aware of being aware, for example, relies on a body. If we ask it a, a little differently and said, does awareness itself depend on a body? Yeah. Then it becomes a little more questionable. So how did, how but did the practice of awareness does. Yeah. So. And then how do we keep practicing it? So, um, so maybe part of it is if we were open to the possibility of awareness itself maybe not actually relying on a body. In fact, a lot of these explanations, if we say it does rely on a body, this, a lot of this story is gonna start unraveling and because if it's dependent on a body, uh, you know, Buddha nature, if it were dependent on a body, then it would be conditioned right. and dependent and impermanent and subject to suffering. And all the definitions of Buddha nature would start like unraveling. So, um, we could say, although I did say the other day, the Dharmakaya is another name for like, um, um, like non-dual awareness, like completely pure of all duality, always comes along with these rupakayas, these form bodies. I said, but, but if, if then I were asked, does the Dharmakaya depend on those form bodies to be the Dharmakaya? And I'd say, no, it comes along with them, but it doesn't um, uh, depend on. This is where, th- where the, the, um, the story gets quite subtle, right? But, um, but going back to the, uh, the, how do we practice? If we can start um, practicing being aware, being aware, verifying awareness and the nature of awareness, um, not just being aware that we're aware, but exploring this awareness to verify that it is boundless and it is timeless. Um, you know, over and over again to deepen the verification. So that builds its trust, deep, deep, deeper and deeper trust that this is so that it's that it's timeless that it's boundless, that it is who we really are, that it is our true nature. It's not some abstract thing that we're talking about over there. It's us and that it's, and that it's actually um, inherently free from suffering. And these are some of the qualities that we could verify. Right while I, the person, am suffering, that's gonna keep going on. If, if I have a butt and I put it on a cushion for long enough, it's going to be some discomfort. But um, meanwhile, is the pure knowing awareness having a problem with that? You can verify, no, it's not. It's just witnessing that in, in, in this completely um, open way without any, um, you know, in other words, awareness of suffering is not suffering. The awareness of the suffering is itself not suffering. And, you know, explore these and verify these points, um, uh, not just once, of course, but like over and over and over, sashin after sashin. 
and uh, we should do another one after this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then when the 18 elements, uh, which are subject to decay and impermanence, start to dissolve and, um, and the body starts falling apart and the you know, mental faculty, the mental sense consciousness starts falling apart. Um, from this model, I could say, but that doesn't touch the, uh, the, the perfect mirror awareness. But how we practice this now, like we can't even remember what the practice is. What's that? Be aware of what again? <laughs> awareness, what's, what? What's that? Oh yeah, I smell lunch. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Oh, it's like something about right here. Now, wait, when? Like that. The more we like, okay, this mind is like falling apart. This body is falling apart. The sense faculties are falling apart. I can't see and I can't really even hear the Dharma and I can't read it anymore. This is going to happen to all of us actually, right? And, uh, but if, if we have developed this trust over time, in that which um, doesn't die and isn't born, um, I trust that uh, this will serve us well. You can almost say the practice in it ultimately is this like deepening trust, and, and it's hard to it's hard for me to imagine that the trust could be so deep that um, everything falling apart and ultimately death um, will. Um, not shake the trust. That's like, that's a tall order, right? That's a, that's a deep trust. Because it is you, you are it. That's right, it is you. It is all of us. Um, and the more we trust this, which starts with, you know, hearing, hearing the teaching and like, actually, it kind of makes sense, even though this is really bizarre. It doesn't fit with my usual way of experiencing the world, but it rings true, like the wind bells. But still, it could just be like some ancestor's um, tricky story, <laughs> cool, like sci-fi or something. And then that's why I first would hear it, reflect on it to see what actually makes some sense. But... And the Buddha says, we have to check it out for ourselves experientially. And that's the hard work, right? And Sashin is so good for this. So hard, even in Sashin, and so hard to, um, to uh, trace back the radiance. And uh, be aware of being aware. And then without all the distractions coming in, start to investigate this awareness these qualities, this, the nature of awareness, uh, which doesn't mean that we have to be so undistracted that there can't be like, you know, getting distracted by the smell of lunch and stuff. That stuff can come in, but it's just like our interest, I think maybe our interest in clarifying these matters has to be like stronger than the interest in what's for lunch. Sure. <laughs> just at the time of investigating <laughs> yeah it's almost like it's so kind of abstract it seems like well how can we be so interested in something so subtle when the smell is so like 
in our face and vibrant. So, um, so again, um, to, to add to the story, and, and I credit um, one of my teachers, Rupert Spira, for this, um, this kind of three-part uh, investigation, which I think I work, I think for me is really powerful. Just the, ex the, the story here. Remember, it's our usual perspective is that the, that the sound of the wind bell and the, and the sight of the flag blowing are happening to awareness. And as Marco pointed out by the story, we can say, strictly speaking, they're happening to the dualistic consciousness. You know? But the, the nature of the dualistic consciousness is the non-dual awareness. So we could say both are true. They appear to be, the sound appears to be happening to the ear consciousness. But that whole thing, if we look deeper, the next step is that all that is happening in the one undivided knowing. So we're kind of shift, trying out the shift of perspective. The sound, instead of the sound happening to the consciousness or the awareness, the sound is happening in the ocean of Buddha nature awareness. And so in order to make that shift, first we really have to um, warm up to the possibility that we're talking about something boundless here. And again, and also not think of it as like physical space, like, like my awareness is like radiating out and it's just made the edges of Austin and now it's going through. It's not like that kind of big thing. That would be kind of some metaphysical weirdness. This is more just like, it's not really vast. It's actually no size at all. As the Juhamira Samadhi said, right? It's so, so minute, it fits into spacelessness. So vast, it transcends dimension. That's one translation. It's not size. It's not in the realm of size. We're so used to size. It's not in the realm of location or size, and it's not in the realm of time. It sounds far up, but we can, if we explore deeply, it starts to seem more and more like this does seem to be the case and of this awareness. And, uh, and then the sound, the experience of hearing the sound must be happening within it. So that's a, like a big shift from a, a strong duality something happening to something, that's always, that's what we mean by duality. In is like almost non-dual here. The sound is happening in the space of awareness. But we could say it's, it's slightly dualistic still because we're still talking about like something within something else. Like this, there's the space of the room here and then there's the lectern is in the space of the room. We don't say that the lectern is the space of the room, right? So it, it's closer, but it, see how that's still a little bit dualistic? Mm -hmm. The experience of hearing in this vast dimensionless space is still like there's two, you can, we're still talking about them as two different things, the sound and the awareness in which it's happening. See how that's slightly dualistic, but less dualistic? So then the third, the third very subtle deepest step is um, to investigate 
that not only is the sound of this voice not happening to awareness and not happening, but it's not happening really in the awareness, it's happening as the awareness. And that's like complete non-duality. In other words, the sound of this truck is not really something arising in the space of awareness. It is the awareness itself <laughs> expressing itself as sound. And it can't be any more non-dual than that, except the fact that we're using words and language. And, and you might say like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the sound is the awareness? So then uh, one way I like to, to explore this is like, um, there, okay, there is sound, there's the sound now, right? I mean, there's, there's hearing a sound for all of us, right? And then, um, and there's a knowing of the sound. The knowing again is awareness. So that's, we're talking about two different things now, the sound and the knowing of the sound. But the question to investigate, you can take this into Zazen as a koan, can you find a sound right now other than the knowing of the sound? There, there is definitely knowing of sound. Right? I, let's make sure we agree. There is a knowing of sound. There is an awareness of sound, right? And, um, and then there's something we call sound. But can we find this present sound other than the awareness of the sound, or another way to say, can we find this present sound in addition to the awareness of sound? There definitely is awareness of sound, isn't there? For all of us, just ordinary speaking, there is an awareness of the sound. Now we imagine that there's some sound in addition to the awareness of the sound, usually, don't we? But this is saying those, are, those would be two different things. <clears throat> the, the investigation is to see if you can find the second thing called the sound in addition to the awareness of the sound. Because really, I think experientially for us, what we really can verify right now immediately, anybody could verify, is there is awareness of sound happening. But we kind of assume there must be some sound in addition to that. And conventionally, it's true. We have the, the story we told about the, the vibrations in the air and the eardrums. But this, even the this story about dependent arising of sound is, is, is an object of mental consciousness. Is there some story of how sound arises other than the knowing of the story? another investigation. Can you follow that one? There is awareness for everybody all the time. There is awareness of sound and sight and so on. And, um, and we assume that there is some sound also out there somewhere in addition to the knowing of it. And can we find anything in terms of the experience of hearing a sound, can we find anything in addition to just the knowing of it or the awareness of it? 
if we're, if we're as good scientists, right, we stay, we stay close to the empirical evidence and we say, well, there must be something, but we're putting that aside and we're saying in our direct experience right now, I can't really verify definitively 100% that there is anything other than the knowing of it or awareness of it. And then we'd say, that's this third step of um, now the sound is not happening to awareness. It's not really even happening in awareness. It's happening as awareness. The actual experiencing of sound, we usually don't think of that as awareness. We think of awareness as kind of like the space in which stuff happens. But here we're saying, very, very intimately exploring, hearing sound, sound, sound. There is this knowing of the sound, sound. What is this knowing of sound? It is just knowing that's taking this temporary form that we call hearing or even that we call sound. So is the 18 dots just the conventional teaching there? That doesn't, seems like there's a lot of extra stuff. If there's just awareness of sound, like that doesn't, it seems like the idea that there's an organ and an object mm -hmm. is also just a, uh, another story. Yeah, the 18 dots story? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is a story right now too. Even some non-dual awareness thing is packaged in a story, mm -hmm. but um, but but I would yeah my understanding is that that um, that the early Buddhist model, foundational Buddhist model, the Pali Canon, um, is described is a description of like um, conventional reality, mm -hmm. and it is a reality. It's a satya. It's a truth. It's a reality. But it's it's the way it's the description of appearance, the way things appear, and we could say and 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 uh, this is describing you know, the conventional appearance of things, which is different than a substantial independent personal self that has eighteen dots, right? Um, and the Buddha is trying to debunk us of that of that of that false view of an independent self. And we say, well, I thought the independent self was conventional reality, but I think I would, I would understand it today is like, no, that's not even a conventional reality. That's just like pure falsehood and an independent self that owns the 18 datus, <laughs> something like that. It's not even conventionally appearing. It's not a conventional appearance. It's just a complete, it's a complete illusion, like a unicorn doesn't really even appear. It's just a made up idea of the mind. Whereas the 18 elements actually do appear in, in, our, in our world of conventional um, consciousness. So they're kind of conventional reality. And then there's an ultimate reality that would be like emptiness, non-duality, or in this case, in these Buddha nature teachings, it would be the perfect mirror itself is ultimate reality here. But if we say that, we better smash it. Quick. <laughs> yeah. So some might, I don't know, 
if, if Theravada practitioners, this is kind of saying that, that those teachings are mostly, I wouldn't say they're all, but, but Abhidharma, the Abhidharma system, which is like the 18 datus and the five aggregates and these kind of teachings are um, from, at least from this perspective of like uh, these Mahayana teachings, they're somewhat dualistic in the sense that they're talking about the relationship of subjects and objects. Um, and then, and then that's part of what this in this Mahayana project is, is kind of pointing out um, like these next steps that dissolve that duality. Now, some might say um, that's not fair. Like uh, um, that actually the, uh, there are, there, the non-duality is kind of built into these early teachings too. I don't think the Buddha maybe ever used the term non-duality. Um, but would sometimes use emptiness. And maybe um, we could say, but investigating the 18 datus uh, in the early model very carefully, we see that actually there isn't really a difference between the eye and the color. We investigate it very carefully. It's not said that way so often in those early sutras, but there are, of course, teachings like Nibbana whenever the Buddha is talking about nirvana in the early teachings, that is like the ultimate truth in the early teachings. Nibbana, yeah, um, complete freedom is the Buddha said in the early teachings is unborn, unconditioned, uncompounded, undying. So, um, so that's a non-duality teaching, but they're, but they're only hidden rarely here and there in that, as I've found in the Pali Canon, whereas like Kazan, they're like a every paragraph. So there's just a little different um, emphasis. Yeah, I don't know what, what others would say. Marco, would you say like that, that in, the, in the Pali Canon, there, there's a kind of, that it's all actually is around non-duality, but it's being taught in this systematic way. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think about the 18 Dachis and their relationship to that with like the Yogacara school of how to explain consciousness. Yeah. And, and this kind of, you know, how to explain like mono Vijnana and then Hawaii. Yeah. It's like this, it's used as part yeah. of the story how to build up to that. Totally. Again, conventional description yeah. of how we know. Yep. That's a good one that you that while we're on the topic, um, <laughs> Yogacara system, it uses this whole early Buddhist system like the 18 Datus, but um, I would say it kind of like upgrades it and it brings in this, yes, Alaya Vijnana, storehouse consciousness. And it says that, um, that the, all, the, all 18 Datus are like arise from the storehouse consciousness and the experiences of, um, that are created by the 18 datus, which you could say all experiences are created by these 18 datus, that those experiences then um, kind of sink back into the storehouse consciousness. And then that gives rise to like a slightly different version of a new 18 datus. So it's kind of saying, yes, there's these 18 datus, but they're, um, it's almost a little like the story we're telling of 
the 18 doctors are now arising and ceasing in this great perfect mirror wisdom, um, which is sometimes said to be like the true reality of the storehouse consciousness. So there's some relationship here. Storehouse consciousness in Yogacara is, is usually originally taught to be kind of um, a dualistic container of everything. And yet the tradition starts playing with that idea over time, like in the Lakavatara Sutra, um, that storehouse consciousness becomes equated with Tathagata Garbha. So like you could say the whole traditions like from, from the time of the Buddha keeps getting like um, evolving more and more towards non-duality. That would be one way to look at it is um, it's kind of saying, well, there must they, people, because people were practicing with all this stuff. And so they're like investigating and they're, and they're like, wait a second, actually they go deeper and deeper into it. Maybe there's really nothing here at all. All this stuff is just appearing. But where is it appearing? <laughs> and uh, discovering and investigating and debating and over many centuries, um, all the teachings are not refuted. That's what's beautiful about the evolution of Buddha Dharma. It never like discounts or refutes the earlier teachings. It just builds on them, uh, kind of upgrades them. And, um, and kind of sheds any duality around them further and further. And Zen could be said to be the kind of culmination of this process. But it's about to go extinct. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna to have to find something that goes beyond Zen. We have to go beyond Zen, actually. Anyone? Um, uh, not follow the happening to, happening in, happening as story. So I think for me, that's been really helpful to meditate on. You can feel the, um, the um, duality kind of st step by step start to collapse with this three part process. Are things happening? experiences of any kind happening to awareness? Are they happening in awareness? Or are they happening as awareness? Like in a lucid dream, right? The sights and sounds that are happening in the lucid dream are, they're not happening to the dream. We, they're not really happening in the dream because the dream is not some located thing. They're just happening as the dream. The dream is taking the form of sights and sounds. Whew. What's the point of all this? <laughs> we, we want to be free from suffering. And one version of suffering and discontent is um, a kind of Mahayana version, really, I think is that it's the origin of suffering is, is the illusory view of duality. Yes? I think this is Alan's question. 
Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good one. We um, either like, I wasn't aware then that, so I missed the sound. So, this important clarification the awareness that we're talking about here is the one that's always present, even when we're totally distracted from the sound, we're thinking about something else we're totally distracted <laughs> we're like obsessed and freaking out about this uh, something you could say awareness is completely there it hasn't gone anywhere right otherwise we wouldn't know during or afterwards that that experience happened there was an awareness of it and it's the exact same awareness that's there during deep still serene samadhi this is the kind of awareness we're talking about the one that doesn't ever change. But we, of course, we don't notice it a lot of the time. So then there's yeah, noticing it and then and making it into something, which of course, whenever we're talking about it, it's kind of making it into something. So um, it's, but it's still, I think, good to talk about it, to, to get, get the fingers aiming more and more closer to the moon. Um, instead of like that way <laughs> and then like but still and we, at some point we have to say like forget the finger and just like um okay directly with the moon or that's what's nice i think about what about when the when the one mirror is facing the other mirror it's like well, i have this idea of these two mirrors what's you know how is that gonna happen what story can we tell about that and, a thousand broken shards, like just smash it all. There's nothing, nothing left. What's that? Shui Fung. Smash things. Where were we? The uh, so so now we got the. Got the story here. Kazan goes on. The form of this ringing, now we know about the form of this ringing, this discussion. The form of the sound of this voice, what is that? The form of this ringing is as lofty as soaring mountains and as deep as the ocean the luxuriant flourishing of grass and trees and the clarity of your eyes are all forms of the mind's ringing. Therefore, do not think that it's a sound ringing. The sound also is the mind ringing. The four great elements, the five aggregates, the myriad things, the 18 datus, are all the ringing of the capital M, mind. There is never a moment when this mind is not ringing. In the end, 
It's not accompanied by an echo, 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 echo. Just this, there's no, nothing in addition, no extra, no extra sound <laughs> echoing in addition to the knowing sound. It's not accompanied by an echo. Also, it's not something heard with the ears. The ear is part of the ringing also. And so it is said to be silent as well. Both minds are silent. When you can see it thus, none of the myriad things appears in any location. Where is, where is this thing? What's the GPS coordinates <laughs> of this thing? <laughs> From our new perspective, um, where would you what would it what would you say is the location, exact location of this thing? No, no. Anybody? Any other guesses? Hmm? Awareness. Yeah, awareness, which is not inside our head. <laughs> our head is inside awareness. Actually, like the idea of our head first seems to happen to awareness. And then it's then if we kind of upgrade that a little bit, we feel like actually this experience of head, my thoughts about the head and everything are happening in awareness. But actually, we upgrade it one more step. Actually, this head is happening as awareness. If we tried to like take boundless, timeless reality and shove it into our head, um, that would be difficult to say the least. <laughs> the brain first appears to awareness. Then the brain, which the brain we're talking about is an experience. Let's not think that there's anything that's ever happened to us um, or to any scientist other than experience. Scientists can poke at a, at a squishy brain. They're having an experience of sight and texture <laughs> and, and ideas about a brain. And then they tell them to us, and now we have ideas about a squishy, pokeable thing in our head, right? But these, so we can't really feel it right now because our skull is blocking it, but, um, Sometimes it seems to hurt. <laughs> I don't know if it's the headache is actually the brain aching or exactly what's going on. I think it's muscles. It's not the brain, right? Does anyone know, does the brain itself actually experience physical pain? No. That's a good thing. <laughs> so, but, it but, but the brain enables physical pain to be experienced for sure, right? So the brain is definitely part of the story here. We don't deny the conventional <clears throat> appearance of brains, but that's just conventional appearances and, that are, and where do conventional appearances happen? In awareness. No one has ever found, this is, this is like, I dare any scientist to refute me. Nobody's ever found any brain outside of awareness. 
Could a brain be found outside of awareness? How <laughs> could it be? Right? So, so we're, you know, we're, but scientists might not have ever had that thought. It helps, it helps that, yeah, in a way, it's kind of like there is some connection, of course, between brain and awareness, but it helps to not think that everything is happening in our, inside our skull. And not even happening like in a sort of like, um, this is where maybe it gets harder. It's not even happening in this sort of like amorphous um, aura around our body that our awareness is not like kind of like around here. And it's not even that it's like more around our body and like less on the front porch. <laughs> awareness is not like that. It's not located, period. Right? That's hard to get used to because we're located people dealing with located things all day long. Choro, did you bring my awareness from outside? <laughs> no. I thought I might have left it on the front porch. Good, thank you. <laughs> It's just so, when will you ever hear this again? <laughs> what, what do you think? Do you mind hearing some more? Um, I know there's hardly any zazen left in the next few days. I want to make the most of it, but, um, but uh, you're welcome to, to um, listen if you'd like, or sit zazen. Um, Kazan says, it's like sailing in an elegant boat in a dream and traveling about on the ocean, even though you part the waves with a pole and learn the power of waves by stopping the boat, there is no boat to sail on, no depths to sink into. Moreover, how can there be any mountains or ocean externally? What self can there be to float in a boat Therefore, it is shown in this way. We can maneuver the boat, we can learn how to sail, we can learn all this stuff, but it's all happening in a dream. There really isn't a boat and nobody in the boat. Maybe boats kind of like the body. Even though there are eyes, there's no, even though there are eyes, there is no hearing. Even though there are ears, there is no seeing. You should not say that the six senses are merged into one. Yes, they're all happening in one bright mirror, but, but when a, um, a foreigner comes, the foreigner's reflected. When a, a native comes, the native's reflected in one mirror that can distinguish differences while being one. But don't say that the six senses are all merged into one. You cannot be bound to the six senses. They're all silent. There are no six senses to grasp, nor are there any six objects to abandon. The six senses and their objects are all liberated. Both mind and its objects are forgotten together. Ben Mark is not here because he's really getting into the 18 doctors, right? Senses, their objects and and uh, faculties. 
If you look carefully, there are no six senses and their objects to be liberated, no mind and its objects to be obliterated. We don't have to obliterate any nasty stuff. Can't be. Like, like um, that would be like, it would be tr like a really, um, a really, uh, you know, smelly turd on the surface of the mirror, right? It's like, well, we try to like get some like, you know, wet rags and try to like wipe it off but you can't wipe the turd off the mirror, right? But luckily, the turd is not like a blemish on the mirror at all. It doesn't affect the mirror, right? Nothing needs to be obliterated or removed or destroyed. In truth, being silent, there is no question of there being the same or different mind and objects. Being the same or different, internal or external, right? So we've been talking about. When you reach such a realm, you will receive and hold the Dharma treasury of all the Buddhas and find yourself in the ranks of all the Buddhas and ancestors. If you do not become this, then even though you understand that the myriad things are not mixed Together, you still make a distinction between self and other, and in the end, you separate thing from thing in the same way. Isn't this the story of our life? <laughs> if you separate them, how can you become one with the Buddhas and ancestors? This is like building boundary walls in the sky. Kazan's really good with these images, I think. How can the sky be obstructed? It's just you yourselves who create obstructions. Once the boundaries are smashed, what can be considered inside or outside? When, when the mirror is smashed, then what? When you reach this realm, old master Shakyamuni does not begin and you people do not end. Because all are one mind, at least the translator puts that in parentheses. There are no distinctions of Buddha faces and ordinary shapes. At such a time, just as still water becomes waves, there is appearing as Buddhas and ancestors. Even though the water neither increases nor decreases, the currents bring waves. Thus, if you investigate carefully, you will reach this realm. Investigate carefully, thoroughly, and, um, and over and over. Because our habit is of dualistic perception is incredibly strong. So even if we feel like this makes total sense, I'm down with it. It's all <laughs> and one minute after the talk ends, we'll be back into it so, so uh when is the next session again <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't have to do this just in session it's really really excellent ground for this kind of investigation even though for eons in the past leading up to the future you have created these boundaries in the sky and
separate time into past, present, and future. From eon to eon, it's all just this. In order to understand this bright, original nature, you do not have to concern yourself about skin and flesh, nor do you have to distinguish by means of the movement or stillness of the body. I don't know here if he's referring to um, um, these layers like skin, flesh, bones, and marrow kind of going more and more inward. Or like when you're sitting sashin, don't be too concerned about your skin and flesh, <laughs> which is kind of a dominant experience of sashin. Don't, of course, we don't obliterate the experience, but um, uh, it's just an experience happening as the knowing of it. By investigating carefully in this way, and putting an end to your own self-inflicted confusion, you will be able to experience this for the first time. If you do not clarify it in this way, you will pointlessly lug around this body and mind throughout the 24 hours of the day. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go to this now. I gotta bring, the, bring the body, bring, bring the brain too. Bring the mind and lug it around all day. What a burden. But what about letting, letting um, Buddha take care of the whole show? <laughs> But carrying a heavy burden on your shoulders, body and mind will in the end never be put to rest. If you cast away body and mind, the mind ground will become empty and silent and you will have a most peaceful life. However, even though you do so, if you're unable to clarify and express the ringing of mind in this story, you will not understand either the appearance of all the Buddhas or the enlightenment of all beings. We talk about dropping off body and mind. You can see, right, how that um, could be understood in this context. We don't obliterate any body or mind, but uh, someone recently asked me, because I think you'll get as many explanations of dropping off body and mind as the people that you ask what it means. <laughs> and uh, but somebody is actually doing a um, uh, a kind of a college paper. Um, they had to do like interview somebody about some topic. So they're going to interview like all their Zen friends about what does Dogen mean by dropping off body and mind. I thought that was super cool. I said, please show me that paper, and it's gonna that's gonna be great. Because <laughs> I bet no two will be alike. What I told them it's like my take on it today is like. Um, uh, it's like dropping body and mind into the ocean of awareness. Dropping them all, the body and mind that seem like there's something happening to awareness, dropping off that kind of body and mind, but dropping them into the ocean. I have some humble words to try to express the ringing of the mind. Would you like to hear them? Kazan says, silent still, the mind rings and reverberates in 10,000 ways. 
like Sanganandi, Gayashata, the wind and the bells. <laughs>